I realize we have a lot of explaining to do. It has been a while. Definitely been a moment, but we're back. Hi. And literally, right as Lindsay sat down, everything was going perfectly fine. And then Lindsay sits down and all of a sudden her microphone stops working. Yeah. And we can't fix it, so fuck it. We're using one microphone again for now. <laughs> anyway. Back to the good old days. Yeah. It's interesting. We're in a new location now. Yeah. New top secret location. A new undisclosed location somewhere in Calgary. <laughs> Pretty cool digs, though. So, yeah. So, today, we are doing something different than we were originally planned. This was supposed to be about completely about the football war, but during research, I realized that, while interesting, it's also very boring for, an episode, for a full episode. So, we switched it up a bit. And we're now talking about very strange wars throughout history. Yeah. I mean, and strange for various reasons. In some cases, they're just straight up stupid and ridiculous. In other cases, it's just very esoteric. Well, in my case, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, so we're probably going to get started here with the war that really started. I guess the inspiration, I guess we should explain. The inspiration for this episode is that we did a poll to see the order of how, what people wanted for the order of our last few episodes of the season. And people chose, well... Chechnya won. Chechnya won, but then... Life got real depressing again, and we were like, well, Chechnya is depressing as hell, so we're going to move on to that later and do something more interesting and weird. And then I hit my point where I was like, I was going through the football war, and I'm like, ah, oh, this is going to be way too boring to do a whole episode on. So I suggested, why don't we do this instead? <laughs> and now here we are. And here we are. So I guess I can get started. I'm going to... With the whole, with the one that got us going here. Yeah. Right? So, the football war is also known as the 100 Hours War, because that's literally how long it was, was fought between July 14th and 18th in 1969. And it was between El Salvador and Honduras. Now, if you've never heard of El Salvador or Honduras before, you're not alone. There are two countries in South America, and El Salvador is tiny. Like, almost... Almost micro state, like Andorra or Vatican City kind of deal. Yeah, tiny. So both countries were dictatorships supported by the United States, which is why this war is so bizarre. El Salvador was led by Fidel Sanchez Hernandez, and Honduras was led by Oswaldo Lopez Areño. El Salvador's population was 3.7 million at the time, which is 40% more than Honduras at 2.6 million. This is despite Honduras being five times larger than El Salvador. This left very little land in El Salvador for farming, and a majority of the workers were farmers and ranchers. So, yeah, I think you can all sense what the, the issue that's about to pop up here. Yeah, yeah. Border clashes. Fun for everyone. <laughs> Border cl Well, we're getting there, yeah. But also, you know, you can't really have a population if they can't eat. Truth. And you kind of need land. Yeah. 300,000 Salvadorans resided within Honduras in instances squatting on unused land. These Salvadorans made their livelihood as farmers and ranchers. At the same time, Honduras's economy was in its steep decline as a result of of the government allowing the American fruit companies to export their products without tax. Areño was also harassed by the opposition in the country over fraudulent elections, because, you know, that's that's rule number one of a dictatorship. Mm, yes. <laughs> we should actually write the rules of dictatorship. Uh, yeah. I'm sure someone has. Oh, there's a, yeah. Take note, future dictators. Actually, no, don't take note. Please. The United Fruit Company owned approximately 10% of Honduran land. United Fruit detested the Salvadoran squatters as they viewed them as a threat to their profits. They, along with other members of what is known as the National Federation of Farms and Livestock Farmers of Honduras, or FNAG, mounted pressure on Areño to act against the squatters. Areño used this as an opportunity to shift blame off of him and the fruit companies onto other targets. Lessons in Dictatorship number 263. In 1962, Honduras enacted the Land Reform Law and, and fully enforced it by 1967. This redistributed the land where <laughs> Salvadoran squatters lived and worked on 
back to it into the possession of the Honduran government or local municipalities. Squatos and even legal farmers were forced off the land they lived and worked on for generations, and regardless of whether or not they had legally immigrated. Areño constantly scapegoated the Salvadorans, accusing them of causing the decline in the economy. As a result, harassment and attacks against Salvadorans increased. Does this sound familiar? Hmm, a little bit. Hundreds of thousands of Salvadorans were forced to flee back to El Salvador, worsening the population density and food supply. Families were separated as Salvadorans married to Hondurans were still forced out. These building tensions were tested during the 1970 World Cup qualifier in June 1969. Here's, why the, here's where the name comes in. Honduras and El Salvador's teams went face-to-face. -face. The first game was in the Honduran capital of Tegucigalpa on June 8, 1969. The night before the game, Hondurans gathered outside the Salvadoran team's hotel and made as much noise as possible to keep them awake, as well as shouting insults to demoralize them. Several fights broke out between fans during the game, not over the game itself, but over the built-up animosity between the two countries. Honduras won one to zero, likely due to the Salvadoran's lack of proper sleep. Following the game, an 18-year-old Salvadoran named Amelia Bolanos shot herself through the heart, dying as a result. The Salvadoran government declared her a national hero, even granting her a state televised funeral with the Salvadoran team following her coffin during the procession. Yeah, that's how fucking extreme this this guy. I mean, as you can definitely tell at this point, it's not, it was, I'm, I'm about to say, it was not over a football game that this war started. No. No. This is just the straw that broke the camel's back. Mm. The second game was on June 15th, 1969, in El Salvador's capital, San Salvador. This time, Salvadorans harassed the Honduran team the night before the game. Many fans brought photos of Bolanos to the game and held them high as the game went on. Prior to the game, the Salvadorans refused to raise the Honduran flag, and instead they raised a white, tattered rag. El Salvador won the game 3-0. A massive fight broke out in the stadium, and the Honduran team was forced to flee in an armored bus back to Honduras, as the Salvadorans launched objects at it. Allegedly, the Honduran team's coach told them it was a good thing they lost. <laughs> Hondurans re reacted to the loss by attacking Salvadorian immigrants, kicking them off their land, and allegedly burning their homes. The final game was to take place in Mexico City on June 27th, where it would be decided who would go on to face Haiti for the qualifying match. The game was tied and forced to go into overtime. Then, El Salvador score scored, eliminating Honduras from the game. The loss only further escalated violence against Salvadorans in Honduras, fans in Mexico City, and the refugee crisis in El Salvador. Furious, El Salvador severed all diplomatic ties with Honduras the same day as the game. El Salvador began a military buildup on the border and on June 14th went into full blackout. The war began when passenger planes with bombs strapped to their sides were used as bombers and attacked air bases in Honduras. Yeah, they literally strapped bombs to civilian airlines and then just like untied the cords and they would the bombs would fall like that's some <laughs> interesting innovation there for war the salvadoran army then made a full-scale ground invasion into honduras what's interesting is that both sides used the world war ii era mil american military equipment such as the p-51d mustangs cadillacs of the sky yep by the next day the salvadoran troops were quickly approaching to Tegucigalpa. The Organization of American States held an emergency meeting agreeing the war needed to end. They pressured El Salvador to end their advance, but El Salvador refused because they're like, well, we're right there. We're almost there. On day three, the Honduran Air Force was finally able to get their planes in the air and were able to cripple the Salvadoran supply line. This stalled the advance and a stalemate ensued. On the fourth and final day, the OAS demanded the war cease, as well as safe passage be granted to Salvadorans leaving Honduras. El Salvador and Honduras agreed, but El Salvador refused to end their occupation of Honduran territory. Eventually, the OAS threatened sanctions against El Salvador, finally forcing them to leave. 
El Salvador lost 900 soldiers and civilians and three aircraft, while Honduras lost 2,100 people. Border disputes remained between the two countries, and the war had actually a significant um, impact on El Salvador, which entered a brutal decade of long civil war, leaving hundreds of thousands dead. The country has still not recovered from this. And for those of you who are curious, El Salvador defeated Haiti and qualified for the World Cup. However, at the World Cup, they lost every single game they played and mm. were eliminated. Of course they did. <laughs> so that's uh, that's that's what started this whole thing. It was also the subject of my very last essay in university. Hmm. Yeah. And all because someone brought this brought up, someone at a party who found out I was a history major was like, hey, did you know El Salvador and Honduras went to war over football? game and i was like what <laughs> i think one of my last papers in my undergrad at least was on nietzsche probably oh it was a rough semester yeah i think i wrote be. a i don't remember anyway <laughs> now for some esoteric american history <laughs> um <laughs> like there's not enough of that yeah i did actually do a lot of american history in my undergrad shout out michael gorman uh great professor like i said esoteric american history in 1787, the Congress of the Confederation enacted the Northwest Ordinance, which created the Northwest Territory and the Upper Midwestern United States. This was after, you know, basically the French had had it for a while, um, English had it for a while. It was, you know, passed around. <laughs> but there were people living there, obviously. So anyways, this, ter- this ordinance uh, specified that the territory would be split into not less than three and no more than five future states and determined that the North-South boundary for the three of these states was to be an east and west line drawn through the southerly bend or extreme of Lake Michigan, now known as near Marquette Park in Gary, Indiana. Fun fact. The, ma- <laughs> the maps of the times were not the most reliable, and it turns out that the actual location of this extreme was not known. The most highly regarded map at the time, the Mitchell map as it was called, placed it at a latitude near the mouth of the Detroit River, which meant that the shoreline of Lake Erie west of Pennsylvania would have belonged to the state that was to become Ohio. Congress passed the Enabling Act of 1802, which authorized Ohio to begin the process of becoming a U.S. state. The language defining Ohio's northern boundary differed slightly from that used in the Northwest Ordinance, though. The border was to be, quote, an east and west line drawn through the southerly extreme of Lake Michigan, running east until it shall intersect Lake Erie or the territorial line with British North America, Canada, um, and thence with the same through Lake Erie to the Pennsylvania line aforesaid. Because the territorial boundary between the U.S. and British North America ran through the middle of Lake Erie and then up the Detroit River, combined with the prevailing belief uh, regarding the location of the southern tip of Lake Michigan, the framers of the 1802 Ohio Constitution believed it was the intent of Congress that Ohio's northern boundary should certainly be north of the mouth of the Maumee River and possibly even the Detroit River. Thus, Ohio would be granted access to most or all of Lake Erie shoreline west of Pennsylvania, and any other new states carved out of the territory would have access to the Great Lakes only via Lakes Michigan, Huron, and Superior. During the Ohio Constitutional Convention in 1802, the delegates were allegedly given reports by a fur trapper that Lake Michigan extended significantly further south than had previously been believed or mapped. This made it possible that an east-west line extending east from Lake Michigan's southern tip might intersect Lake Erie somewhere east of Maumee Bay, or worse, might not intersect the lake at all. The further south Lake Michigan went, the more land Ohio would lose, and perhaps even losing the entirety of Lake Erie shoreline west of Pennsylvania. So to address this, the Ohio delegates put a provision in the Constitution that if the trapper's report was correct, the state boundary line would be angled slightly northeast so as to intersect Lake Erie at the most northerly, northerly cape of the Maumee Bay. It's actually sometimes written as Miami, which is interesting. Yeah. This position would guarantee that most of the Maumee River watershed and all of the northern shore of Lake Erie west of Pennsylvania would fall in Ohio. The United States Congress accepted this draft, including this provision, but before Ohio's admission to the Union in February of 1803, the proposed constitution was referred to a congressional committee. The committee's report stated that the clause defining the northern boundary depended depended on, quote, a fact not yet ascertained, so the latitude of the southern extreme of Lake Michigan, basically. Um, and the members, quote, thought it necessary to take it, the provision, at the time into consideration. When Congress created the Michigan Territory in 1805, it used the Northwest Ordinance's language to define the territory's southern boundary, which therefore differed from Ohio's state constitution. This difference went unnoticed for, like, 30 years, but it established the legal basis for the conflict, which would eventually erupt, and that's why we're here. 
So for context, railways had not yet been built in much of uh, America, and so the primary mode of transportation was horse, which is slow. And so the rivers and canals of the United States were extremely important to uh, supplying Midwestern outposts and connecting them to the rest of the Union. So supplies, et cetera, to really build these states all had to come on canals and lakes and rivers. And so Ohio facing losing a huge chunk of access to a big lake and river is uh, not a good thing for them. So that's really why this conflict is happening, I guess, or where the tension lies, I suppose. So, and then obviously dumb people, but uh, or pe- people, just, <laughs> people just being people and escalating things. But anyways, uh, stubborn, I guess, not dumb. By the early 19th century, though, uh, this little difference in cartographical opinion was becoming contested. Residents of what is now Toledo urged the Ohio government to resolve the border issue. They kind of wanted to know where they lived. <laughs> the city of what is now Toledo, or Toledo, is smacked as like the most important city, really. It's the most contested city in this area, I guess, here. So they were sort of caught between Michigan and Ohio and really wanted to know where the hell they actually resided. Uh, the Ohio legislature, in turn, passed repeated resolutions and requests asking Congress to take up the matter. In 1812, Congress approved a request for an official survey of the line. This was delayed because of the War of 1812, naturally. And only after Indiana was admitted into the Union in 1816 did work on the survey actually start. So the U.S. Surveyor General, yes, that's a real position, Edward Tiffin, who was in charge of the survey, was a former Ohio governor and therefore not entirely unbiased, (laughs) and thus hired a surveyor named William Harris, to survey not the ordinance line, but the line as described in the Ohio Constitution. When completed, the, quote, Harris line was placed at the mouth of the Maumee River completely in Ohio. When the results were made public, Michigan was pissed since it was not based on the congressionally approved ordinance line. The governor of Michigan, Lewis Cass, wrote a letter to Tiffin stating that the Ohio-based survey was, quote, only adding strength to the strong and making the weak still weaker. It's a little dramatic, but okay. It's not your land anyway. You stole it from the natives. Michigan then commissioned their own survey, which was carried out by John A. Fulton, and his survey was based on the original 1780 ordinance line, and after measuring the line eastward from Lake Michigan to Lake Erie, it found Ohio's boundary to lie south of the mouth of the Maumee. The region between these two survey lines became known as the Toledo Strip. This strip of land was about five to eight miles wide, over which both jurisdictions claimed sovereignty. Toledo was smack dab in the middle of this, so that's why it's called that. Ohio refused to concede its claim, and Michigan quietly occupied it for the next several years, setting up local governments, building infrastructure, and collecting taxes. This strip was, and still is, commercially important to the area due to the rivers and canals, which were, quote, the major highways of commerce, really, in the Midwest. At the time, there were plans to connect the Mississippi River and the Great Lakes through a series of canals, and one such canal system, which was approved by the Ohio legislature in 1825, as the Miami and Erie Canal, that included a connection to the Ohio River and an outflow into Lake Erie via the Maumee. During the dispute over the Strip, the Erie Canal was built, linking New York City and the eastern seaboard to the Great Lakes at Buffalo. The canal finished in 1825 and immediately became a major route for trade and migration, so it really highlighted the importance of gaining access to Lake Erie. The success of this canal inspired many other canal projects. Because the west end of Lake Erie offered the shortest overland route to the frontiers of Indiana and Illinois, Maumee Harbor was seen as the site of immediate importance and great value. Detroit was 20 miles up the Detroit River from Lake Erie and faced a difficult barrier of the Great Black Swamp to the south, which made it less desirable for new transportation projects like canals and later railroads than Toledo. And from this perspective on the rapidly developing Midwest of the 1820s and 30s, both states had a lot to gain by controlling the land that Toledo was controlling the Toledo Strip, basically. So in 1820 and 1821, the federal land surveys had reached the disputed area from two directions, progressing southward from the baseline in Michigan and northward from one in Ohio. For unknown reasons, Surveyor General Tiffin ordered the two surveys to close on the Northwest Ordinance, the Fulton Line, rather than the Harris Line, perhaps lending implicit support to Michigan's claims. Thus, townships that were established north of the line assumed that they were part of Michigan and they eventually reached the required 60,000 people to qualify for statehood. When they applied, Congress said no because of the disputed Toledo Strip. Ohio asserted that the boundary was firmly established in its constitution, and thus Michigan citizens were simply trespassing, and the Ohio Ohio government refused to renegotiate with, or, well, negotiate at all, actually, with Michigan. Ohio's congressional delegation was active in blocking Michigan from attaining statehood, or lobbying other states to vote against them, or, like, against Michigan. Frustrated by the political stalemate, Michigan's acting governor, Stevens T. Mason, in January of 1835, 
called for a constitutional convention to be held in May of that year, despite Congress's refusal to approve an enabling act authorizing such a state constitution. In February 1835, Ohio passed legislation that set up county governments in the Strip. The county which Toledo set would be named after incumbent Governor Robert Lucas, a move that further exacerbated the growing tensions with Michigan. Also during this period, Ohio attempted to use its power in Congress to revive a previously rejected boundary bill that would formally set the state border to be the Harris Line. Michigan, led by a young and hot-headed Mason, responded with the passage of the Pains and Penalties Act just six days after Lucas County was formed. The act made it a criminal offense for Ohioans, Ohioans to carry out governmental actions in that strip under penalty a fine up to $1,000, up to five years imprisonment at hard labor, or both. Not a good time. No. Acting as a commander-in-chief of the territory, Mason appointed Brigadier General Joseph R. Brown of the 3rd U.S. Brigade to head the state militia with the instructions to be ready to act against Ohio trespassers. Lucas obtained legislative approval for a militia of his own, and soon he sent forces to the Strip and area thus commenting the quote-unquote Toledo War. Former President John Quincy Adams, who at the time represented Massachusetts in Congress, backed Michigan's claims. In 1833, when Congress rejected Michigan's claim for a convention, Adams summed up his opinion on the dispute by saying, quote, Never in the course of my life have I known a controversy of which all the right was so clearly on one side and all the power so overwhelmingly on the other. Also kind of dramatic, and I feel like that's not the best example of <laughs> no. such a thing. But, you know, okay. Acting as commander of chief, commander and chief of Ohio's militia, Governor Lucas, along with General John Bell and about 600 other fully armed militiamen, arrived in Perrysburg, Ohio, 16 kilometers southwest of Toledo, on March 31st, 1835. Shortly thereafter, Je- Governor Mason and General Brown arrived to occupy the city of Toledo proper with about 1,000 armed men, intending to prevent Ohio advances into Toledo, as well as stopping further border marking from it taking place. Desperate to prevent armed conflict and to avoid the dire consequences thereof, U.S. President Andrew Jackson consulted his Attorney General Benjamin Butler for his legal opinion on the border dispute. So some context here, why Jackson's so nervous, other than obviously not wanting another another civil war. (laughs) Um, Ohio is becoming a growing political power in the Union with 19 representatives and two senators. Comparatively, Michigan was still a territory and had only one single non-voting delegate. This made Ohio obviously more, like, had more, they had more uh, precedence, I guess, over Michigan. Ohio was a crucial swing state, and still is, as if anyone (laughs) watches presidential elections, in presidential elections, and it would have been devastating to the fledgling Democratic Party to lose Ohio's Democratic, or electoral votes. So Jackson was really afraid of his own presidency coming to an end if he fucked over Ohio. So Jackson calculated that his party's best interest would be served in keeping the Toledo Strip part of Ohio, and he's probably correct. Butler responded in an unexpected way, though. He held that until Congress dictated otherwise, the land rightfully belonged to Michigan. This presented a political dilemma for Jackson that spurred him to act and influence the outcome of the war. On April 3, 1835, Jackson sent two representatives from Washington, D.C., Richard Rush of Pennsylvania and Benjamin Shue Howard of Maryland, to arbitrate the conflict and present a compromise by, to both governments. The proposal was presented on April 7th and recommended that the resurvey mark the Harris Line commence without further interruption by Michigan and that the residents of the affected region be allowed to choose their own state or territorial governments until Congress could definitively settle the matter. Lucas of Ohio reluctantly agreed to the proposal and began to disband his militia, believing that this debate to be settled. Three days later, elections were held in the region under Ohio law. Mason, however, refused the deal and continu- continued to prepare for possible armed conflict because he was kind of odd During the elections, Ohio officials were harassed by Michigan authorities and the area residents were threatened with arrest if they submitted to Ohio's authority. On April 8th, the Monroe County, Michigan sheriff arrived at the home of Major Benjamin Stickney, an Ohio partisan, and arrested the two Ohioans under the Pains and Penalties Act on the basis that the men had voted in the Ohio elections. This was the first contact between Michigan partisans and the Stickney family. And the Stickneys were a really big family in this area, I guess. Don't really know that much about them, but their name came up a lot, so. <laughs> Important. After the election, Lucas believed that the Commissioner's act or actions had alleviated the situation and once again sent out surveyors to mark the Harris Line. The project proceeded without incident, or without serious incident at least, until April 26th, when the surveying group was attacked by 50 to 60 members of General Brown's militia. Surveyors wrote to Lucas that while observing the blessings of Sabbath, Michigan 
forces advised them to retreat. In the ensuing chase, quote, nine men who did not leave ground in time after being fired upon by the enemy from 30 to 50 shots were taken prisoner and carried away in into Tecumseh, Michigan. The details of the attack were are disputed, but the battle served only to make things more tense, obviously. In response to allegations that Michigan's militia fired upon Ohioans, Lucas called a special session of Ohio's legislature on June 8th to pass several more controversial acts, including establishing Toledo as the county seat of Lucas County. Uh, fight and fire with fire. Mm -hmm. Michigan's legislature responded with a budget appropriation of $315,000 to fund its militia. That's a lot of money then. In May and June, Michigan drafted a state constitution with provisions for a bicameral legislature. I don't actually know what that means. Uh, a, supreme, a Supreme Court and other components of a functional state. Congress was still not willing to admit Michigan, and Jackson vowed, vowed to reject Michigan's statehood until the border issue and quote-unquote war were resolved. Lucas ordered a count of the militia and was told that 10,000 volunteers were ready to fight. That news traveled quickly and became exaggerated, as it does, especially as it went north and eventually it reached Michigan, where the Michigan press dared the quote, Ohio Million, to enter the Strip as they, quote, welcomed them to hospitable graves. Not really tense. Both governments continued to abide by the policy of one-upping the other for the middle part of 1835, and constant skirmishes and arrests continued. Meanwhile, the citizens of Toledo were just like, fuck, figure it out. On July 15th, tensions and emotions finally overflowed and blood was spilled. Monroe County, Michigan De Deputy Sheriff Joseph Woods went into Toledo to arrest Major Benjamin Stickney, again, but when his family resisted, the whole family was taken into custody. During the scuffle, Major's son, too, Stickney, he named all of his children literally in the order that they were born. So one, Stickney, two, Stickney, three, Stickney. Anyways. So two, Stickney, stabbed Wood with a penknife and fled into, fled into Ohio. Wood's injuries were not that serious. So, you know, blood was spilled, but it wasn't really, like, <laughs> serious. Uh, Lucas refused to extradite to Stickney to Michigan for trial, and Mason wrote to Jackson for help, suggesting that the matter be referred to the U.S. Supreme Court. However, at the time of the conflict, it was not yet established that the Supreme Court could resolve state boundary disputes, so Jackson declined the request. Looking for peace, Lucas began making his own efforts to end the conflict, again through federal inter intervention via Ohio's congressional delegation. In August 1835, at the strong urging of Ohio's congressmen, Jackson removed Mason as Michigan's territorial governor, and appointed John S. Horner in his place. Before his replacement arrived, though, Mason ordered a thousand Michigan militiamen to enter Toledo and prevent the symbolically important first session of the Ohio Court of Common Pleas. While the idea was popular with Michigan residents, the, op the effort failed. The judges held a midnight court before quickly retreating south of the Maumee River, where Ohio forces were positioned. So, didn't really matter. It happened anyway. Uh, anyways, his, repl his replacement, Horner, was extremely unpopular as gover governor, and in 1835, Michigan's re-elected Mason. <laughs> this election also saw Isaac Crary chosen as Michigan's first U.S. representative to Congress, but because of the border dispute, Congress refused to accept his credentials and saw him as a non-voting member. In June 1836, Jackson signed a bill that allowed Michigan to become a state, but only if it ceded the Toledo Strip. In exchange, Michigan would be granted the western three-quarters of what is now known the Upper Peninsula. Michigan rejected this because of the perceived worthlessness of the region, but as the year drug on and they were crushed under the weight of the militia date debt they had occurred, they were spurred to action with the realization that the, a U.S. Treasury, treasury surplus was only going to be given to states and not territories, and they would be ineligible. And so sure enough, just like that, when they realized they wanted the money, <laughs> the war unofficially ended in December 1836, and on January 26, 1837, Michigan was admitted to the Union as the 26th state without the Toledo Strip. It turned out to work out, though, because the Upper Peninsula ended up becoming a really, like, they found a lot of ore and other things to mine there, so it ended up having a pretty b booming economy. So it worked out in the end for both parties. Kind of. Sort of. Who do you think won? Tell Cast us your vote, viewers. Tell us in the vote comments. Viewers, listeners. Who do you think won, Lindsay? I think Michigan in the end. Yeah, I agree. Because what they got in exchange was worth a lot, ended up being worth a lot more than Toledo. Sorry, Toledo. Yeah, like I think Toledo is a fine city, but it's for me at least mostly known as the place where, uh, um, oh my god, um, the mash, um, I have no idea. Oh, my God. Uh, 
dresses that wears the dresses. Oh, Klinger? Klinger, yeah. Jesus Christ. Can't remember can't believe I forgot his name. <laughs> My poor dad. Just shuddering right now. Me too. He loves Klinger. I love Klinger too. I'm upset at myself. Yeah, so that's our dive into esoteric American bullshit. Uh, also known as American history. <laughs> hey oh, Sorry, Brian. Now we're going into esoteric British bullshit, also known as British imperialism. So the next war is called the Anglo-Zanzibar War, a.k.a. the shortest war in recorded history, and we cannot emphasize that enough. It was between the Sultanate of Zanzibar and the British Empire, plus with pro-British Zanzibaris, I think they're known as. But anyway, so the breakdown is the Zanzibar Sultanate, which is now part of Tanzania, was a British protectorate beginning in 1890. This was a result of a treaty signed between the British and German empires in exchange for the Germans receiving what is known as the Caprivi Strip in German West Africa, which is now Namibia. If you look at a map of Namibia, it's that little weird panhandle that kind of comes out at the north. And if you ever wonder where it came from, well, it was because uh, the Germans wanted access to uh, the to the river. So they got this strip, you know. No re- no uh, cons- consultation with the local tribes people there. Yeah. Yeah. That's not how imperialism works. No. <laughs> Lessons of imperialism, number one. Don't consult the locals. But do you have a flag? <laughs> uh, thank you, Eddie. Zanzibar was used by the British to, as a link between their North and South British territories. And construction on a British railway along the Zanzibar coastline, or along the Zanzibar coastal territory began because even Zanzibar was made up of those uh this these collection of islands but they also owned like pretty much the entire coastline of what is now tanzania in 1893 hamid bin thuani became sultan of zanzibar he was pro-british despite dissent amongst the people of zanzibar over increased british control over the country because you gotta remember it wasn't a british territory but it was a protectorate and pretty much the british could you know tell them what to do on August 25th, 1896, Hamad died unexpectedly in the palace. In his place, his nephew Khalid bin Barghash became sultan. It is unknown how Hamid died, but it has long been suspected Khalid had been had him assassinated or assassinated Hamad himself with poison. Khalid was against British authority and moved into the palace without their approval. The British preferred Hamoud bin Muhammad as their, as he was more cooperative towards British rule. <laughs> By the end of the day, Khalid amassed twenty-eight thousand or twenty-eight hundred soldiers, excuse me, a majority of whom were just armed citizens, to the palace, ignoring warnings from British officials. He also had control over the royal yacht HHS Glasgow. The British issued an ultimatum to Khalid to leave the palace by 9 a.m. on the 27th. The British had a total of 1,050 soldiers, three cruisers, and two gunboats. As the ultimatum approached, the British still heard no word from the palace by 8.55 a.m. on August 27th. At 9, the ships were ordered to open fire, and at 9.02 a.m., the first shots were fired. The Glasgow briefly engaged the British ships before they surrendered and were rescued prior to the ship's sinking. I think that was a wise move. One ship versus five. <laughs> the bombardment continued until the Sultan, Sultanate, or the Sultan's flag fell and the guns went silent. Khalid had fled the palace almost immediately, and sources vary on how long exactly, and sought refuge in the German consulate. Despite British demands for his extradition, the Germans refused. However, they promised he would be exiled to German West Africa, or sorry, German East Africa, and he was transferred to Dar es Salaam, stepping right from the consulate grounds onto a boat. He never returned and died in Mombasa in 1927. Hamoud became sultan, but the British tightened their grip on Zanzibar. 
Following the war, it became a full-on puppet of the British Empire until its independence in 1963. Following a socialist revolution in 1964, the last sultan, Jamshid bin Abdullah, fled to Oman and later the United Kingdom. Zanzibar's new government quickly negotiated a union with Tanganyika, which is the mainland, forming the United Republic of Tanganyika and Zanzibar, which was renamed Tanzania six months later. So let's just recap. So the guns started at 9.02 a.m. That's when the war started on August the 27th. 1896. The war ended at 9.40 a.m. on August 27th, 1896. The war literally lasted 40 minutes. <laughs> it is literally the shortest war in recorded history. So, for, uh, so as far as we know, it's probably the shortest war ever, <laughs> even in pre-recorded history. Because, yeah, it was a legit war. There was even a declaration of war and everything. And 40 minutes later, no. The British were not having it. Just gunboat diplomacy is the word I think we all know. Yeah, I think, yep. Well, not love. Love is a strong suit. But <laughs> if you guys have a stranger war than that, I want to hear it. Well, have I got a deal for you. Oh, here we go. Yeah. All right, uh, our final war for the evening here. It's Friday evening as we record this. Chicken wings are in the oven. Wing Friday is a thing. Anyways, <laughs> um, speaking of poultry, uh, <laughs> that was a transition. Uh, the, the final war on our, our list here is uh, the Emu War, or also known as the Great Emu War, because anything with... British or colonial powers has to have great in it, usually. <laughs> or, like, you know, they have to have, like, some sort of pomp in the name. Yeah. Anyway, ultimately, it was a wildlife management military operation um, undertaken in Australia over the latter part, or the later part of 1932, to address public concern over the number of emus said to be running amok the Campion District in Western Australia. Now, I have been to Australia, and I have met an emus and i can confirm that they are sketchy as fuck um that doesn't mean i condone any of the things that are i'm going to discuss here but sketchy birds that's all you need to know it's a photo of me on the internet petting a kangaroo and being stalked by an emu it's the most australian photo ever anyway back to the story <laughs> it's been a long day following world war one large numbers of discharged veterans who served in the war were given land by the australian government to take up farming in western australia often in agriculturally not ideal areas with the onset of the Great Depression in 1929, these farmers were encouraged to increase their wheat crops with the government promising and failing, as they do, to deliver assistance in the form of subsidies. In spite of these recommendations and the promised subsidies that never came, wheat prices continued falling, and by October of 1932, matters were intense as farmers were preparing to harvest the season's crop while simultaneously threatening to refuse to deliver the wheat. The farmers' difficulties were definitely exacerbated by the arrival of some 20,000 emus. It's <laughs> a lot. Emus regularly migrate after their... I'm just, I just picture this, like, tidal wave of emus. It's, like, all I have in my mind. It's just this, like, fucking mass, this horde, like, kind of like when you watch, like, 300 or any of, like, those movies, and it's, like, the armies. I'm picturing yeah. that, but emus. <laughs> 20,000 strong. Invading army. Anyway. Emus regularly migrate after their breeding season, heading to the coast from the inland regions. With the cleared land and additional water supplies being made available for livestock and the Western Australian farmers, the emus found that the cultivated lands were actually pretty nice places to hang out, and they began to foray into farm territory, particularly around Chandler and Walgulin. Turns out, there's water and food there. Let's stop for a rest. A little snacky snack. Emus ate all the crops and spoiled what they didn't eat as well as leaving large gaps and fences where rabbits could enter and then do the same. So, you know, destructive. And they're not very good house guests. No, destructive guests. Stop for a snack and fuck the place up. <laughs> they pillage as they go. Farmers relayed their concerns, and a deputation of ex-soldiers were sent to meet with the Minister of Defense, Sir George Pierce. Having served in World War I, the soldier settlers were well aware of the effectiveness of machine guns, and they requested their deployment. The minister agreed, but under some conditions. The guns were to be used by military personnel, not ex-soldiers. Troop transport was to be financed by the Western Australian government, not the federal government. 
and the farmers were, would provide food, accommodation, and payment for the ammunition. This is not going to be free. We'll help you, but you're going to pay for it. We have a depression going on here, after all. <laughs> Pierce supported the deployment on the grounds that the birds would make good target practice for the soldiers. Turns out, not true. Others viewed this operation as a way of being seen helping the Western Australian farmers and stave off the secession movement that was brewing there because they were pretty unhappy about the lack of wheat subsidies after being stuck there in the first place. So military involvement began in October 1932, and the quote-unquote war was conducted under the command of Major GPW Meredith of the 7th Heavy Battery of the Royal Australian Artillery, with Meredith commanding the soldiers Sergeant S. McMurray and Gunner J. O'Halloran, armed with two Lewis guns and 10,000 rounds of ammunition. Sounds like a redneck camping trip. Right. The operation was delayed by rain, which caused the birds to scatter over a wider area, but when the rain stopped by November 2nd, 1932... The troops were deployed to assist the farmers and, according to newspapers, collect 100 emu skins so that their feathers could be used to make hats for light horsemen. On November 2nd, the men traveled to Campion, where 50 emus were sighted. As the birds were out of range of the gun, the local settlers attempted to herd the emus into an ambush, but the birds split into smaller groups and ran to avoid this. This first attempt may have been ineffective, but later in the day they were able to kill, quote-unquote, perhaps a dozen. The next significant event took place on November 4th, Meredith having established an ambush near a local dam, and more than 1,000 emus were spotted heading towards their position. This time, the gunners... This is great. (laughs) On this occasion, the gunners waited until the birds were in close proximity before opening fire, so as not to scatter them. But the gun jammed only after 12 birds had been killed and the remainder of them bolted, and no more birds would be sighted. He had limited success in the following days further to the south, and by the fourth day, army observers noted, quote, that... Each pack seems to have its own leader now, a big plumed bird which stands fully six feet high and keeps watch, while his mates carry out their work of destruction and warns them of our approach. It was almost as if they were organized. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. Uh, At one very frustrated stage, Meredith even tried mounting a gun on a truck, but this didn't work because the birds were faster and the bumpy ride made it hard to get any shots off. (laughs) Emus are like, fuck all y'all. Where are the captains now? (laughs) (laughs) After six days um, and some 2,500 rounds of ammunition later, and an uncertain number of birds being killed, estimates were around 50. It's not very efficient. (laughs) But other accounts range from 200 to 500, and the latter figure is provided by the settlers, so it's kind of optimistic. Meredith's official report noted that his men had suffered no casualties, as one would hope when at war with birds. (laughs) Um, Summarizing the culls, ornithologist Dominic Cerventi commented, quote, The machine gunner's dreams of point-blank fire into masses of emus were soon dissipated. The emu command had, had evidently ordered guerrilla tactics, and its unwieldy army soon split up into innumerable small units that made use of military equipment made use of military equipment uneconomic. A crestfallen force therefore withdrew from the combat area after about a month. <laughs> I love that description. They evidently ordered the emu command had evidently ordered guerrilla tactics. Ugh. Yeah. So good. After a withdrawal, Meredith said that, quote, if we had a military division with the bullet-carrying capacity of these birds, it would face any army in the world. (laughs) (laughs) They can face machine guns with the invulnerability of tanks. They're like Zulus whom even expanding bullets couldn't stop. (laughs) It's a lot of reverence for the emu after this. Oh, man. Australians are funny. (laughs) Anyway. After the withdrawal of the military, the emu attacks on crops continued. Farmers again asked for support, citing hot weather and drought that brought emus invading farms to the th- er, in the thousands. James Mitchell, Premier of Western Australia, lent his strong support to the renewal of military assistance. At the same time, a report from the base commander was issued indicating that 300 emus had actually, like, in actuality, had been killed in the initial operation. Acting on requests and the base commander's report, by November 12th, the Minister of Defense approved military operations resume. He defended the, de- defended the decision and said it, explaining why the soldiers were necessary to combat the serious agricultural threat of the large emu population. I mean, yeah. It's not great. Although the military had agreed to lend the guns to Western Australian government on the expectation that they would provide the necessary people, 
Meredith was once again placed in the field due to an apparent lack of experienced machine gunners in the state. This second attempt was more successful, and, and, and in the end, by December 10th, he reported 986 kills with 9,860 rounds of ammunition. So a little more efficient, about 10 bullets per bird. Um... <laughs> Despite the problems encountered with the cull, the farmers of the region requested military assistance in 1934, 1943, and 1948, only to be turned down by the government because it wasn't really that efficient. Instead, there was a bounty system in place, put in place, and it was instigated in 19... Well, it had started in 1923, and it was instead continued, and this actually proved to be a lot more effective. It turns out when you're hunting something for money, people care a lot. Ah. Uh, yeah. That are more effective. Yeah. By, 1932, by December of 1932, word of the Emu War had spread to the UK, and some conservationists had there protested the call as, quote, extermination of the rare emu. Wasn't all that rare, apparently. I don't think so, yeah. Dominic Cerventi and Hubert Whittle, eminent Australian ornithologists, described the quote-unquote war as an attempt to, at the mass destruction of the birds, which is not untrue. <laughs> but, yeah. Kind of fucking ridiculous. Look at the mass destruction it did in my crops. Sorry for, I just lost all of Australia there. So I guess the final score is Emus 1, Australian 0. <laughs> Australian Army, sorry. And Settlers. <laughs> they're fucking massive. Emus. Birds. We're the captains. Yeah. They're, bra- they're massive. Massive birds. Sketchy fucking birds. Yeah. Like, like legitimately one sort of snuck up behind me and I was like, oh God. <laughs> I love that picture. Oh no, it was a different time too. I was like walking. Oh, yeah? There's a, yeah, like an emu following us, and my friend's like, let's fucking go. Yeah. Also, fuck, happy birthday, Catherine. They can fuck you up, those birds. Speaking of pictures of you in Australia, those, those, there are those photos of you with all the birds, like, all over you, oh, and you just parrots. look so fucking stoked. The king parrots? Yeah. Yeah, they were cool. Uh, do you have an interesting fact for the week, or... No? Okay, that's cool. I got one. <laughs> I got one. Uh, the flag of the Philippines... For those of you who don't know, the Philippines are, is an archipelago island in Asia, in the Pacific. Well, yeah, in the in the Pacific, kind of that corridor between the Pacific and, and the, the Indian, Indian Ocean, Ocean, run by an asshole. Yeah, mm, he just yes. lost the Philippines. Well, he seems like the kind of guy that listens to like every single thing he's mentioned in. Probably the flag of the Philippines. It's made in such a way. So usually, I'll, I'll describe it. It's like got. It looks, it's similar to the Czech flag in, in that it has that triangle on the side. And it's a white triangle, blue on the top, red on the bottom. And then there's like, I think there's a, it's a sun in the middle of the triangle. And then there's three stars on each of the tips. Mm-hmm. Hope I did a good job describing that. So it's in such a way that uh, during, during Philipp- peacetime in the Philippines, the blue is on the top and the red is on the bottom. When the Philippines is at war. They flip the flag upside down, so red is on the top and blue is on the bottom. That that's how the flag is meant to meant to be used. Oh, interesting. I, yeah. So I I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I wonder what it's like right now because they're kind of in the middle of two insurgencies plus a drug war. Yeah. So, uh, any if we actually do have listeners in the Philippines, tell us in the comments. Tell us in. <laughs> But yeah, I just I I found that out recently. Thank you, Reddit, for letting us letting me know about that one. So yeah, yeah, and I love flags. I'm annoyed. I feel like I had a fact and I just lost it. It's the worst. Yeah, it's always the worst. Oh well. Yeah, Chechnya probably is going to be a long episode. Yeah, that one's going to take us some time. What was the other one we're doing? Kashmir. Right. Kashmir is probably going to take a while too. Yeah. So the last couple episodes are going to take a while. So. Apologies for the delays in recording here. Yeah, um, we've probably taken enough of a break that we can just jump into the next season. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. Um, we'll decide that later. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like we'll probably just keep going. I feel like episodes have been spaced out so much, we may as well. I think so, yeah. Um, which is, we apologize for. Uh, it's been crazy busy the last few months. We're hoping things will settle down now. Um, unfortunately, COVID is getting really out of control again here in Alberta and Canada in general. Um, so that's also sort of complicating matters i guess big time so hopefully our lives will sort of quiet down a little bit um that's also why we didn't do trivia this month uh for anybody who was participating in that um the first two time for great we're gonna try and regroup and do it again in may so hopefully fingers crossed hopefully that works if not for sure june 
Yeah. Um, I'm not going to give too much away, but we're going to work. We're working on something through the summer. We'll have more details on that later. Yeah. Uh, we just, just don't want to give too much away no, while it's, it's in the in the very planning stage. Yeah. Pilot project. Yeah. So. Um. So yeah, we're gonna probably honestly recording is gonna be like once a month. I'm oh yeah, I think for so. The next yeah. Foreseeable future, so we apologize for that. Um, but we'll at least try and sink everything we have into every episode and make it worth your while. Yeah, um, I, I don't expect there's going to be as long as of a delay between episode. Uh, no. Between episodes again. No. We, um, especially we did need a, a bit of a break just to kind of regroup ourselves. Cause yeah. Shit really hit the fan here in Alberta. Yeah, and then I moved. So. Yeah, yeah there's that, and I, and so. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, so stay tuned um, for Chechnya. Yeah, and on this note, right before we started, as we mentioned, uh, we're down to one microphone now. So now's a great time to consider supporting our Patreon. We yeah. really appreciate it. <laughs> uh, if you love what you're hearing and want to help keep it free and also want to get some other cool bonus content, including the ability to get bonus episodes at the end of every season, okay, yeah, head to our Patreon and consider supporting us. There's two episodes of the series Musing My Controversy up on Patreon right now, available immediately. Both of them have very special guests. Uh, one is Mookie Cornish, who is a clown and a former performer for Cirque du Soleil. And the other is uh, Gummy Ghost Girl. <laughs> that, that's, that's, how, that's how we I know her as. Uh, who is a content adult content creator on OnlyFans, who was awesome. <laughs> and yeah so go check that out we got some a couple vlog and some uh, uh kevin wallpaper yeah. for you uh just another really quick thing if you want to just make like not make constant donations but like a single donation maybe enough to get a new microphone would be <laughs> nice on our page we have a link tree which has links to all of our um I'll, I'll post it again on on our facebook page but we have a link tree which when you click on it it has links to all of our social media platforms and everything yeah so yeah so where if you, you wherever you want to get down like you want to download our content all of the links are there so spotify podbean itself uh apple what whatever works for you but uh there's also a link to a paypal donation page so you can make single donations through paypal I think that's good. Thank you guys so much. Thank you for being so patient with us. We've hit 13,000 downloads recently. Damn, I haven't checked in a while, We got 13,090 <laughs> when I checked before we started recording. That's awesome. Um, so, yeah, stay tuned. Chechnya is next. And, yeah, so I'm Jonah. I'm Lindsay. Thank you guys so much. Kevin says we are. <laughs>